Welcome to the Fire Pit. Hi, I'm Les Garland, founder of MTV Music Television and a proud Link Soul Ambassador. As a listener of the Fire Pit with Matt Janella, go to linksoul.com and use promo code MATTY, M-A-T-T-Y, G25, to enjoy a 25% discount on your next Link Soul order. In the meantime, make par, not war. And while you're at it, do you mind throwing another log on the fire? It's story time. So if you remember the pennant race of 1993, it was the Braves and the Giants went down to the last day. They each won like 100 plus games. The Giants were ending the last day of the season. They were playing in LA, you know, trying to win the pennant. So I went to the game and I'm, I'm sitting in the stands Giants are already losing, like Piazza had like two home runs. It was so sad. But, um, and I, I, I was like, oh my God, it's two o'clock. You know, it's five o'clock in New York. And this is pre-cell phone. This is 1993. I'm running around Dodger Stadium trying to find a working payphone. They're all busted. Like like six phones in a row. Like I could, and I'm freaking out. And so I finally find one and I dial, you know, I have my mom's like calling card number or whatever. And I'm just, I'm not even into it. I just want to get back to the, the baseball game because I know that Joan is going to answer. And I just was like, it's just a formality. So I'm like, I'm just listening to the game, you know, we're trying to, trying to watch on the TV. And Mulvoy answers. He's like, Mark Mulvoy. I said, what are you doing this summer? I said, why don't you come and work for us as an intern? Call me next week and we'll talk details. It was like, <laughs> it was like a nine second phone call on a payphone in Dodger Stadium. And I'm standing there like, I think my life just changed. I don't even know what, what just happened. Put another log on. Welcome back. I'm Matt Janella, and I'm pretty excited about this episode of The Fire Pit. After last week's industry roundtable and the state of the game in the midst of this global pandemic, we're back to telling a story. But before we get started, I want to thank everyone who donated auction items and everyone who bid on those items for their generosity and support. Together, we raised over $17,000 for Feeding America, the nation's largest domestic hunger relief organization. The game of golf never ceases to amaze me. And then there's Alan Shipnuck, who's amazing in his own right. This story is about how Alan got the job at Pebble Beach as a kid, then Sports Illustrated as a kid, and how he chased down Ken Griffey Jr. to write what would be the first of his 20 plus SI cover stories. I started at Sports Illustrated as an intern in 1995. And as you'll hear today, Allen started as an intern in 1994. Two years later, in 1996, at the age of 21, Allen became the youngest staff writer in the magazine's illustrious history. We both worked together covering golf, Allen providing the words, while I was helping produce and edit the pictures. We've been all over the world together, chasing the game, the players, the best narratives, and the contents of each other's wallets. From Bandon to Ireland, Pebble to Pinehurst, the old course to New Zealand, we seem to always stand on the 18th tee, all square. In this episode, we're going back to the first tee of Alan's days as a budding scribe.
Yeah, it starts really like in the, in the early 80s. My dad had a girlfriend who was a Sports Illustrated subscriber. And I'd already loved sports at that point. I was a big Giants and a Warriors fan, grew up in Northern California. SI just kind of blew my mind. And here was this just beautiful package that would come every week with, you know, I'd cut out the photos and put them on the wall. But I started to get into the articles just as a fan. But at some point, I started to think about them a little more. Uh, deeply and just kind of wondering intuitively, like, how do they do that? You know, this story just absolutely uh, enthralled me for the last 20 minutes and, and kind of wondering why and how. And that kind of, I think, set me down the path of wanting to be a sports writer at, a, at an early age. So, you know, and when I was a junior in high school, I started writing for the Salinas California, and that, which is a pretty good local newspaper, I had about 50,000 circulation. And um, I did that, you know, for two years. And by the end, I was basically their number one writer. Uh, I love sports and I love writing. And, and honestly, it just felt natural to me. By the time I was probably a, a sophomore in, in high school, I was very tuned into the bylines and the different writing styles. And I mean, this is so this is so nerdy, but I used to like make flow charts of the stories uh, just to try and figure out like, you know, like it went from here to there to there to there. They came in because like I knew stuff was going on, but I couldn't quite crack the nut. You know, I, it was just like, um, and so uh, I was really into the writing. And you know, at some point, I stopped. Um, I stopped cutting out the photos, and all I cared about was was the articles. And then when, so then I had to decide where I was going to go to college. And you know, back then Northwestern had the best journalism schools, so I got into Northwestern. I went back for a visit. And it was freezing. Uh, I got like, you know, basically pneumonia in April. But more than that, their school paper was this little pamphlet. It was like eight pages. It was just, it was nothing. And then, and then the, this is, this is 91. And so the, back then Northwestern sports sucked. My sister was at UCLA. She's three years ahead of me. And so I used to go down there a lot. And the Daily Bruin was like this thick. I mean, it was a hundred pages a day. And, you know, UCLA sports was, was going gangbusters. They were winning Rose Bowls. The O'Bannon brothers were showing up on campus and the, the basketball team was ascendant. And uh, so I just felt like um, for a lot of reasons, UCLA was the place for me, but mostly because of the, the school paper. And, uh, you know, back then they had a rule. You had to go, go through this whole like uh, freshman year class orientation and you really couldn't start writing for the paper until you were a sophomore. But um, because I had all these clips from the Salinas Californian, they looked at it and said, all right, this guy knows what he's doing. So I started writing pretty much right away as a freshman. And um, so that all those pieces were kind of in place. Um, concurrently, you know, I needed a job to, to pay for UCLA. So I started working at golf courses. My, my first job when I was 16 was at Quail Lodge out in, in Carmel Valley. It was an interesting place. Ben Doyle was teaching there. He's a disciple of Homer Kelly, the golfing machine. Bobby Clampett was floating around. I mean, all this stuff was way over my head, but it was a pretty cool little universe. I, you know, but it was also sleepy. There wasn't a lot of tips because the members were kind of old and cheap and whatever. I was looking for more action. And so I wound up uh, at this brunch with Tom Oliver. He was the Pebble Beach Company president and a lot of people at the table because my mom was a local politician. So she knew him. And he's like, so, Alan, what are your plans for uh, for this summer? I was like, well, Mr. Oliver, I need a job. You know, and and kind of he was he was kind of a schmoozy dude. Like he he picked up. He's like, well, we'll take care of you know. He's this big grandiose gesture for all the table full of you know swell people. So that's how I wound up getting hired as a cart boy at Pebble Beach. So Shipnuck is good. Already understands the craft. It's the early '90s. He's a teenager with dreams and aspirations to write for the magazine he loves to read. He's bound for college, but he's parking carts at Pebble Beach. Next step. Get an in with SI Brass. 
it really starts before my freshman year at UCLA. It's that summer before. So now I'm working full time as a cart boy for June, July, August, trying to, you know, put away as much money as I can to pay for tuition. And because I was such an avid reader of Sports Illustrated, not only did I know the bylines, but I, I knew the editors because Mark Bolvoy was the top guy. So I knew Bolvoy's name. And at Pebble in those days, um, maybe still, they we'd get this computerized printout of the next day's T-sheet. And I would always flip through it because, oh, Michael Jordan or, you know, whomever. Like it was, it was Pebble Beach, but a lot of cool people roll through there. And so I'm flipping through the names. I see Mark Bolvoy. I'm like, oh, my God. Of course, no one else in the pro shop had any idea who this guy was. And so the next day, you know, I'm waiting for him on the first tee and he comes out. And um, my old boss, R.J. Harper, the late R.J. Harper, who's, who's a legend, I told him what was coming. So um, R.J. made this big introduction and hyped me up. And I always appreciate that. Now, there's a little bit of a Gomer Pia look to, to Alan. He was sort of a tall, lanky kid, you know, a little longish neck and uh, very but very well spoken. And he told me what he had done. And I said, well, great. I said, do me a favor. The great thing about assessing writers is somebody sends you something, you read it and you say, he can write or, oh my God, this is garbage. And so I told, I, I said, Mr. Mulvoy, my dream in life is to write for your magazine. I've been reading it since I was 10 years old. And he was gracious, but this guy runs the greatest magazine on planet earth. I'm an 18 year old kid. He has very little use for me, but uh, he gives me his card and he kind of pats me on my head and sends me on my way. And, um, you know, he hits like, like a nice high draw down the first fairways. I'm sure he'd tell you about in great detail. And um, and every few months I would send him a letter in New York because I had his card. You know, dear Mr. Movoy, I'm now covering, you know, women's rugby for the Daily Ruin. And uh, no response. But I kept sending the letters. Uh, you know, I started covering football and basketball. You know, those were big beats. I mean, the Daily Bruin in those days had an almost unlimited budget because UCLA is surrounded by Westwood, Brentwood, Santa Monica, Beverly Hills and all those stores wanted to reach the students so that they would all advertise in the Bruin. We we had, I mean, I would fly to football and basketball games in Arizona and Washington and Oregon. It's getting paid like $1,500 a month. I mean, it was crazy. It was the greatest uh, newspaper job you could ever have as an undergraduate. And I was doing big stories. I mean, I wrote I wrote probably a 3,000 word story about the, the women's soccer team's battle to go from club status to division one. And it was like the whole back page of, of the Daily Brew. I have that story too, by the way. And uh, <laughs> it was like, like doing like legit journalism. Um, so anyway, so fast forward now to the summer of 93. It's my third summer at Pebble Beach. And once again, I'm flipping through the T-sheets. Mark Volvoy. And my first emotion is, I can't believe you to tell me he was coming. You know, I'm like hurt, but uh, not really. Anyway, so I see his name. And I actually wasn't even supposed to work the next day. But I switched shifts so I could be there. And he he comes out. And as, as your listeners will hear, Mo has got this great Boston accent. So I run up to him and I'm, I'm like humping his leg. And um, uh, and I, I can't do Boston, but he's like, oh, yeah, you little shit ass. You sent me those letters. And I was like, yeah, that's me. And so I said, do me a favor. Send me a bunch of the stuff you've written. He says, well, I've written for the local magazine and some things like that. He lived in one of the local towns out there. I forget which one. I later came to find out there was a, this nice old lady named Joan Rosinski, who you know, Matt. She was Mulvoy's yeah. secretary. Joan was the one who would open my letters and read them. And I don't think Mulvoy ever saw them, but he, he was maybe vaguely aware they existed. This is now, I think, August of 93. And um, SI was about to launch something called Golf Plus, which was going to debut in January of 94. It was, it was a very small idea. It was going to be like four or six editorial pages. They had one writer dedicated to it, Jaime Diaz. But Mulvoy was realizing they could probably use an intern. So he said, he's like, yeah, okay. Um, send me some more clips and, you know, a, a more formal introduction. 
and uh, might have might have something for you. So of course I go home and I pour through all my stuff and um, create this whole package. Um, and he says he says call me on Sunday at five o'clock. Mark Mulvoy's office. Uh, no, he stepped away. May I take a message? Uh, he'd probably be back within the hour. Can I say who's calling? Alan Shipnuck. Okay, spell that, please. I'm a little discouraged, but I know he's a busy guy. And so now the school year started at UCLA. So now, now I'm down at UCLA doing this. Call again. Can't talk right now. Can't reach him. Mark Mulvoy's office. Uh, he stepped away. Uh, may I take an... May I take a message, please? Uh, oh, Mr. Shipnook again. Can't reach him. Hello. Can't talk right. Can't talk right now. Can I call you back? Thanks. So, if you remember the pennant race of 1993, it was the Braves and the Giants went down to the last day. They each won like 100 plus games. Um, in the, Atlanta being in the NL West back in, in those days, geographically, <laughs> so, to make any sense. Yeah, yeah. So, my cousin has season tickets to the Dodgers. The Giants were ending the last day of the season. They were playing in LA, you know, trying to win the pennant. So I went to the game and I'm, I'm sitting in the stands. The Giants are already losing like Piazza, like two home runs. It was so sad. But, um, and I, I, I was like, oh my God, it's two o'clock. You know, it's five o'clock in New York. And this is pre-cell phone. This is 1993. I'm running around Dodger Stadium trying to find a working payphone. They're all busted. <laughs> Like like six phones in a row. Like I could and I'm freaking out. And so I finally find one and I dial, you know, I have my mom's like calling card number or whatever. And I'm just I'm not even into it. I just want to get back to the, the baseball game because I know that Joan is gonna answer. And I just is like it's just a formality. So I'm like, I'm just listening to the game, you know. We're trying to trying to watch on the TV and Mulvoy answers. He's like, Mark Mulvoy. I said, What are you doing this summer? I said, well, when you come and work for us as an intern. Call me next week and we'll talk details. He was like <laughs> It was like a nine-second phone call on a payphone in Dodger Stadium. And I'm standing there like, I think my life just changed. I don't even know what, what just happened. A week or two later, excuse me, a week or two later, this kid comes in to see me. And he walks in, and he's got a pair of flip-flops on. He's got a goofy shirt that's hanging out, and his hair's all over the place. But we had an intern program. They didn't pay people. We paid Alan, and we got him a place to stay in a dormitory room down at NYU. He had a free room, and I know that somehow in those days you could do a lot of things. We flew him back and forth. You know, <laughs> you could do a lot of things. You can't do those things now. I show up on January 2nd, 1994, in a blizzard, and uh, Golf Plus turned out to be an absolute home run because this was like right when the big birth of driver had launched, and it set off this whole equipment war. And all, all the manufacturers wanted to advertise in Golf Plus. And so the ad money is pouring in, and they literally cannot fill the pages. And your poor Jaime Diaz, who we know is one of, one of the, the greatest golf minds ever uh, and an absolute legend. And I love Jaime. He's a really important mentor, and he's a, still a friend, but he's not the fastest writer. We all know that. <laughs> Jaime will admit that, right? There so. is not a deadline that was given to Jaime that wasn't actually blown through by <laughs> days, weeks, months. So, um, and they have they have this guy Rick Lipsy who's uh, kind of helping helping Jaime. You know Rick and yeah. Rick, one of the nicest human beings who's ever lived, but also not like a prolific deadline writer. And so, they're they're literally having trouble filling the pages. So that they send me out to like the Honda Classic to help Jaime, and um, he's like, yeah, I'm overwhelmed. He's like, maybe you could make some phone calls because. Um, 
Phil Mickelson had just broken his leg skiing and uh, Fred Couples had just blown out his back at Doral. And like all these guys were going down. He's like, see what you can find out. And so it was his first thing he ever wrote for Sports Illustrated, I'm pretty sure. And it was a it was a thing on Fred Couples. And it was about a Fred Couples uh, cutout. And I remember, I mean, it was well crafted right off the bat. I mean, he could write right off the bat. And I, I said, let me just look at it. And I, I was just going to change one word. And because he repeated a word, I think he might have had two ands in there. And I remember Shipnuck went like, oh, wait, wait, don't, 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 you know, don't touch it. It's like a fucking Picasso, you know? So <laughs> he had real pride. That's a good sign, you know? I mean, you know, I'm, hey, Alan doesn't need any coaching from me. But, I, you know, right away, you could tell he had high standards. So now they sent me out to start doing stories. And uh, I'm not an employee. I'm just an intern. So I don't have a business card. I don't have a corporate Amex. Like I literally have my my UCLA Visa card that has a limit of like four hundred dollars. And so I'm 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 trying to check out hotels and I'm getting turned down. I'm not I'm even 21, so I can't rent cars. I'm taking cabs everywhere. I've got this loner laptop. It's like the first generation computer ever built practically that is always breaking on me. Um, and it was just it was nutty, but for whatever reason I felt like I could do it. And so I started turning these stories in and they kept and they were like, okay, this is pretty good. Let's give them another one. The stories kept getting bigger. I went down to the Masters for the first time. Uh, it just started to snowball. You are, so you're 20? Yeah, I'm 20. I, I turned 21 at the end of May. Yeah, I'd done one quarter of my junior year in the fall of 93, and then um, and then I, I dropped out. It was going to be an eight-month eight internship. I was always going to go back at the end of, of August. And so um, and it was just a crazy time because, again, this is pre-internet. So um, – I mean, people were paying $400,000 for a one-page ad in Sports Illustrated back in those days. Like, it, they had, they were printing money. And wow. we had what was called the bullpen, you know that, Matt. Like, it was yeah. all kind of the the young, um, aspiring writers. But their, their, their primary job was to fact check and maybe write small things. And there was so much talent. I mean, it was like, you know, John Walters and Tim Crothers and... Um, Marty Chad, Burns. Yeah, Marty Burns. Chad Millman, who, you know, has gone on to a great career as a... Uh, David Fleming, uh, My, Michael Jaffe, you know, he's a successful oh. novelist, like all these guys. And they're just dying to get any assignment and get out of the bullpen. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm traveling every week. I'm, I'm writing six page features. And this is actually so funny. So Michael Jaffe, uh, his, his bio, he goes by Michael Grant Jaffe. And one of his, one of his novels became a Hollywood movie. Yeah. And he, he was a, um, he was a college like hockey player. He was a big dude. Yeah. I mean, he's probably six like, four, gravelly voice, and he loved to haze me. Like I was just this, this little, you know, irritating intern for a while, and um, and all of a sudden I'm out writing stories. And so you'd file the story again. This is pre cell phone too. I'd you'd have a, I'd call in and say, talk to the editors and um, and this woman named Bambi Wolf kind of oversaw all these young aspiring writers in the bullpen. And she would she would parcel out the fact check assignments, and so I call in and she said, "Yeah, Jaffe's your fact checker." I was like, "Oh God!" Oh my so, God! So I I called Jaffe. I was like, "Hey, Michael, it's Alan Shipnick. And there's this long pause. I mean, like five seconds, which is an eternity. And he says, "The gods must be mocking me." And um. I just, I was just going with it. I was just trying to stay above the fray. And, um, and so by, you know, after the U S open really, uh, at Oakmont, 
which was an incredible open. You know, that that was Arnie's last open, and that was that was the playoff with Els and Monty, and it was, uh, it, was it was it was an, what an introduction to the national championship. Um, but after that, Mulvey calls me down to his office, and and he says, he's like, "Hey, kid, you, you've done a great job." You know, we're gonna hire you. Don't worry about it. But uh, you know, I'd hire you right now. But your parents would hate me. You know, you're gonna, you need to go back to school and get your degree. But before you go, I want you to do one story for me. And so, 1994 was the year that Ken Griffey Jr. absolutely blew up. You know, he had 35 home runs at the All Star break. He signed with Nike, and they were pumping out all these cool ads. And um, so they wanted to do a big story on on Junior. So it was that summer. And uh, all of a sudden, I walked in one Thursday, and I said to our baseball editor, Steve Wolf, I said, you know, we're going to do a story on Ken Griffey. He said, well, film rights on vacation. I said, I know. So-and-so. I said, you know, you're talking about a lot of 50-year-old and 60-year-old guys, and do we really want them to be writing about a 19-year-old kid? Why don't we have Shipnick do it? Well, the look on Steve's face, I mean. So Mulvoy, you know, he calls me down to his big corner office, and he's like, um, He's like, why not? He's like, you guys are the same age. Why don't you, why don't you see if you can get the story? Go to the All Star Game in Pittsburgh and just make your pitch and see what happens. It's like, okay. So I go to the All Star Game and it's great. And my whole, you know, my only job is just to get like ten seconds with with Griffey. But of course, everybody wants him. And for three days, basically, I can't even, I can't even like catch a glimpse of him. And I, I finally corral him um, after the All Star Game and 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 tell him, you know, what I what I want to do. And he's like, he's not, you know. He, He's got people coming at him left and right. He's like, okay, maybe if you come to Seattle, maybe we can work something out. I said, like, great, I'll go to Seattle. And so this is actually a funny piece of it. So again, I'm just traveling. Like I don't even know what I'm doing really. Um, and so I check. <laughs> you're in, twenty. I, you're like twenty, twenty-one years. I know. So I go to. I, I fly into Seattle SeaTac Airport, and I just take the first little like ho- motel by the airport. And I check in. And again, no cell phone. So I call Mike Bevins, who was their baseball guy. And he was this really scary old school guy. People were lived in fear of Mike Bevins. I'm still afraid of him. If he showed at my front door, I would I wouldn't answer. (laughs) So I call I call Bevins and he's a little he's a little um, bemused that I've even gotten this assignment. And so it's like it's like he's like, how do I reach you? Where are you staying? I'm like, oh, I'm at the uh, Seattle airport motor in and. And there's an, again, there's like this pregnant pause. He's like, check out immediately and go check into the Four Seasons. He's like, SI riders don't stay at the, the Seattle Motor <laughs> oh Inn. God. When the sun is shining in Seattle, there's nowhere nicer. And I'm having a great time. I'm down on the field for batting practice. And I, you know, I'm just a baseball fan. It's so cool. And um, really hadn't covered baseball to that point. And, um, but Griffey, looks at me like he doesn't even know me when I, when I reintroduce myself and he's like, it's, it's a bad, it's a bad week. I got all these other commitments. It's, it's like, wow. Well, okay. Ken, you know, told me in Pittsburgh to come out. He's like, yeah, sorry, dude. And um, so for two or three days, I'm just watching baseball and hanging out. And but every day I have to call with Bevin. He's like, how's the story coming? I'm like, it's coming. You know, I got this is Cameron. This is Cameron. I know. I, this is the I, whole I've, thing is unbelievable. I've got, I've got nothing for this story. Um, except at the all-star game, um, Reggie Jackson pulled pulled Griffey aside and had this long heart to heart with him, and there weren't many people around. And I saw it, and it just kind of registered to me. I, um, and I went up to him afterwards, and, and you know, uh, Mr. Jackson, what what did you tell uh, Ken Griffey? And he looks at me, he's like, "That's private, son." Like, okay. <laughs> the kid was never in awe of anybody, never overwhelmed by any situation. I mean, he was 19 going on 28. So, but that was just a little moment that I got from the All Star game, and um, so now I'm getting desperate. So. 
in those days, and I don't know if it's still the same, but uh, but where there was a clubhouse entrance where all the, the family and friends would kind of wait for the players after the games. And it was kind of a fun scene. Everyone's happy if they won and everyone knows each other. There's a lot of very beautiful women and all that. And so um, I'm hanging out and Griffey, you know, he's 22 years old. He's living in, in a mansion with some of his high school friends. And there's one guy, his name, I don't know his real name. His nickname was Jojo. And uh, so I started chatting him up and this guy loved to talk. And so he's, he's telling me all kinds of great stuff. And, uh, it, it was like in 20 minutes, I had so much good material. And so Junior comes out now and, and JoJo's like, yeah, man, we had like 10 girls in a limo. And, uh, and, and Richard's just and his eyes get big because he's like now this corporate property, right? And he doesn't want all this stuff out. In fact, he's, and he's also dating the woman he's going to wind up marrying. And so he, he literally puts his arm around my shoulder and he steers me away. And he's like, he's like, yeah, man, I can't have you talking to JoJo. And. <laughs> I said, well, Ken, uh, you know, I'm here to do a job just like you are, and you've blown me off, you know, four days in a row. So I've just got to get my information however I can. You know, I'm sorry, but I got to talk to JoJo. He's like, you he's said like, that to Ken Griffey? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, what I have to lose? He's already blowing me off. He's like, he's like, fine, be at my locker tomorrow at 10 a.m. and we'll talk. It's like, great. So show up. We talk for like an hour. It's really good. He jumps up. He's like, nice to meet you. I got to go hit. I was like, you know, I, I just, I just don't have quite enough for like a big long story. You know, I'd hate to have to go back to Jojo. He's like, he's like, he's like, motherfucker, be here tomorrow at 10 and that's it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so show up the next day and, you know, get like another hour. And so now I've got incredible amount of, of interview time, but I'm still, uh, and I mean, I basically extorted the interview, right? It was fantastic. And, uh, but I'm still, I still have like the, the framework for the story in my mind. And so then that day at batting practice, Reggie Jackson is there. And, uh, you know, he's, he's got some special position with the Yankees and with Major League Baseball, and he kind of travels around. And so um, I, I buttonhole him, and and I, I, I say, you know, Mr. Jackson, we met in Pittsburgh, which he doesn't even remember, of course. I said, uh, I said, this is a potential cover story for Sports Illustrated, which I didn't even know that to be true. But I knew that Reggie had like a, an ego and like that would kind of puff him up. And so and so he I, we he recreates this whole conversation he had with, with Griffey and and about all the pratfalls of stardom. And, you know, like he said, when I was Ken Griffey Jr., when I, you know, before Ken Griffey Jr. was Ken Griffey Jr. Like and he, he gives me all this great stuff. So I realized like there's this whole little thing, you know, this passing of the mantle not necessarily from, from from for Reggie, but just you know, Junior's like this new star and generational like, generational talent yeah. and how's uh, everything that's that's coming his way. And so I kind of use like the the conversation with uh, with Reggie Jackson to frame the story. Do you write this in Seattle? Are you you know are you a note taker by notebook or is this yeah. are you transcribing a video right. a, a audio recorder? Like what's this format? Both. Both. I'm recording. I'm taking notes, and I'm just. You know, that's all I'm doing while I'm there is I'm so focused on this. I'm transcribing, I'm interviewing, I'm talking to all the players on both teams. I've got so much material. Um, now, if you remember, 94 was the season that got truncated by the strike. And, you know, Frank Thomas is hitting 394. Uh, Griffey's got a chance to hit 60 home runs. Tony Gwynn is hitting like 400, yeah. by the way. Like, yeah. And, and yeah. the Expos are unbeatable. It's, right. it's a joke. So, so now we're like in late July, and I thought I had time. You know, they, they basically said, take a couple weeks, write the story. But Bevins is like, listen, strike might be coming. We've got to get the, we want this story to run as soon as possible. 
you know, this is like maybe like a Thursday. Like, can you file Sunday morning? I'm like, uh, okay. And um, so I just stayed, I stayed the four seasons and have good room service. It was fantastic. And I wrote the story. And um, meanwhile, they got Walter Yost to take an incredible portrait of Frank Thomas and Ken Griffey Jr. I shot them separately on the field before the game. And then I shot them together in a, an auxiliary locker room for the cover of Sports Illustrated. So before the game, I had a batting pack practice pitcher throw tennis balls and I laid on the ground and they would hit balls over me. So you had the sun in, you know, middle of the summer in Comiskey above them in a strobe and, you know, I'm laying on the ground with uh, no shirt on. I probably should have had a shirt on, but you know, I like, <laughs> it was hot out there. Uh, the best part of it was, you know, I got to meet Griffey in the long run out of this story. So that to me was the most important. Thomas was, he's always a little tricky. So this is the cover. Can you see it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Check this out. This is the original, like, press pass. Oh. Which I've always held on to, you know, handwritten because, uh, I mean, that, that's a whole other thing is, like, the PR guy from the Mariners, when I show up in Seattle, he pulls me aside. He's like, he, he's so miffed because I didn't go through any of the proper channels. You know, I just went to Griffey, sold it to him. He's like, this is not how we do things in Major League Baseball. He's like, I need to, I need to contact for your editor. Like, like he's totally pissed off at me. And um, that was just another thing that was hurting my cause. So he goes off, spends 10 days with Griffey, God knows where, Seattle, wherever the hell they were playing. Turns in this story, and I'm looking at it, and I said, oh, my God. Steve comes in to me and says, oh, my gosh. And Peter Carey, everybody, you know, my assistants, everybody who had read those things, they said it was a home run. It was a wonder. I mean, it was a perfect match of people, two 19-year-olds. So, yeah, so that that comes out and then the strike hits. But it's such a uh, it's like a, a powerful cover. You know, it's the lighting's beautiful and they, they both look like total badasses. And what do you re do you remember anything about that cover shoot? Uh, yeah, I kept teasing Frank, and I'm, you know, I've known Frank for a while. I just kept saying it was the beauty and the beast, me being the beauty. Uh, <laughs> uh, but in Chicago, uh, weather wasn't bad. Um, but it was, you know, to me, it was a typical photo shoot. You know, it was like, hey, you want to do this? Yeah, you're going to be on the cover of sports. So, yeah, all right, let's go. Um, which I tried to limit my access uh, as much as I could, but I know there were certain things that. Uh, um, I had to do. Uh, so, so that story comes out and it's right at the end of my internship, you know, I'm about to go back to school and Mulvey calls me down to his office. He's like, kid, I'm so proud of you. And, uh, and uh, he's like, he's like, listen, you go back to school, get your degree. Like we talked about when you graduate, we'll make you staff writers. Like you'll be the youngest staff writer in the history of the magazine. And that was sort of the start of his career. And I mean, he had a job, a full-time job at Sports Illustrated the day he finished up at UCLA. Um, um, Jesus. And, but and then he, he's like, but don't, uh, he's like, but I, when you graduate, I want you to, I want you to come back to New York. You know, I think it's important you, you're, you work out of the office and you have the resources of, of, of the library and get to know the editors. I said, okay. So I go back to school. I have five quarters. I pretty much stopped right the day they brew in and, and kept writing for SI. They, they made me a special contributor. So I used to cut classes and like fly off to do stories and then come back. And, um, and it's funny, I actually had a journalism class and, I like I was such a it was kind of a cocky move. I remember going up to the professor and like like slapping a magazine on her desk. Like, <laughs> I just like submit this story for my assignment. Like, no. 
Oh, right. <laughs> a thousand original words, you know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I read the story this morning because I was trying to transport myself back into the, 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 the early 90s. The headline of your story is Junior Comes of Age. He's the straw that stirs the game. Um, and your anecdotes of Reggie to Junior, uh, uh, you know, in talking about how he would deal with the pressure and expectations, Reggie was marveling at sort of, I mean, you're living the story you're writing did you ever uh, at some point have that sense you were also sort of basically kind of writing your own story? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, it's pretty meta, really, when you think about right? it. But in a small way, obviously. Um, you didn't uh, know that at that time. We, you, yeah, you didn't, but, but I did know that this was like like a, a monumental opportunity for me to yeah. get this assignment. And as, as you know, like Bevins and David Bauer, Rob Flader, like all the top editors, Peter, they all loved baseball. They were baseball nerds and junkies. Like that was the sport they cared about the most. Uh, I don't know why that's so, but there was just a period in SI where all, all the guys pretty much who ran the magazine were obsessed with baseball. And so to you know plant your flag in that beat, get on the cover, you know, share the cover with with Rick Riley. I mean, it was all those, all those things were meaningful. So I, I knew it was a huge opportunity. Um, so you were 21 when that cover story came out, you're 21 yeah. year old. You, yeah. you were, you were still at UCLA. Still, still a junior basically. You're still yeah. in the, in the process of trying to get your degree. Yeah. That's, that's. Yeah, that was, that was cool. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I just remember, you know, back then, like walking around New York and seeing that, magazine on the newsstands and like that, that was that was neat and um do you have like a hundred copies buried really in don't. a box somewhere i have a couple like um I, I i'm not even sure where they are but it's so funny because a guy on twitter just reached out to me he said i was cleaning my garage and look what i found and it was that cover and he said I'm, can i send it to you will you sign it and i said well i might actually just keep it <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> What happened with your relationship with Junior after that cover story? Had, had, do you ever cross paths? No follow-up note? Yeah. You know how it is. You rarely get that. I mean, actually, this just came in the mail. This is a letter from Ben Crenshaw, like the, the new golf oh. magazine. I, um, I have a big feature on Ben. Like, It's very rare to get the handwritten note. Channel um, Ben, of course. You know, of course classy. it's Ben. Yeah. So classy. Where did I bump into to Junior? God, it was like, I mean, literally 15 years later. He's at the end of his career. I was, I was living in Southern California, and so every now and then SI would ask me to do some Dodgers stuff. And so uh, he was playing for the Reds. You know, he'd gone back to the Reds, like, late in his career, and I was out there doing a feature. And um, and so I, I just walked up to him and said, hey, Ken, I'm, I doubt you even remember this, but way back in 94, you're on the cover of Frank Thomas. Like, I was, I was a young kid. I wrote that story. He's like, I remember that cover, man. That was cool. And uh, we had, um, you know, we had a fun little... I'm sure you remember the photo. I, I doubt you never ever read the story, right? But this is a memorable photo, first time on S on the cover. So that was kind of fun. I'll, I'll, I'll end on this note because I my kids every now and then I've, I've been asked to like be a speaker at, you know, the, the Carmel Middle School Career Day, and so uh, all these <laughs> you get, the kids come out because you know all the boys want to be, think they want to be sports writers. They don't know that the most important thing is to be a writer, not to be a sports fan. But they all show up, and I tell the story about sending the letters to Mulvoy because. I did have some natural ability to write, but I, the most important part of the whole tale is that 
you know, the dogged determination to send him those letters, to be waiting for him on the tee, to keep following up. Like I basically forced the guy to give me an internship and that was where it all began. So I tell the story to kids, like it's not enough to be good at something like you have to really want it and you have to really follow up and you have to be really dogged. Over the years of, you know, watching him, working with him, uh, reporting, you know, next to him, there, there's not many people who, who report. I mean, you can have a great writer and you can have a great reporter. And sometimes you have a great reporter who also is a great writer, which I think Alan is, because I don't think he gets enough credit for his reporting, which ultimately leads to his well, great writing. Funny thing, man, it's an interesting point you bring up. For instance, I looked at people and I qualified them, quantified them as I was a far better reporter, for instance, than I was a writer. I also wrote 12 books and I wrote yeah. 30 cover stories for Sports Illustrated. Curry Kirkpatrick was as fine a reporter-writer combination as you'd find anywhere. And yeah. if you're, I mean, if you're a great reporter, you can survive uh, as a writer. But if you're a writer who can't report, you have a hard time surviving. No, Alan had that perfect blend. He he asked the right questions. He was very prescient. He was knowledgeable. He looked around. He talked to people, and uh, and then he wrote. I mean, when you have the the, the, the dual talents that he had, uh, it was brilliant. First impressions of Alan. Well, I could tell how enthusiastic he was, and but also a real confidence bordering on cockiness because he just, I think, knew he was sort of destined for something. And he wasn't, I didn't think, awed by being at Sports Illustrated. I mean, he basically, I think, felt like, you know, okay, I got here through some fortune, but this is where I was going to end up one way or the other. And, you know, I think he was comfortable with the task, and I think he knew you know, the traditions of the writing there. And, and I think he thought he could meet them. And, uh, you know, not without, you know, he wasn't at all uh, obnoxious about it, but he just carried himself with a, an assurance that was, uh, you know, very evident and not off-putting. It was more like, okay, you know, this kid's going to go someplace and, uh, you know, just don't, uh, don't act like uh, he's got to pay all these dues. He's already, you know, at a high level. At that time, 1994, he's obviously, that was the strike year, but Thomas is, is, is having a thunderous year and Griffey might hit 60 home runs. Do you kind of, what's your recollection of, of sort of his status? At that well, I never met either of them before. I mean, Griffey is one of my favorite players of all time. You know, maybe the, the sweetest swing up there with DiMaggio and, and the history of the game and did everything magically. So maybe I spent 15 minutes with the portraits. And at the end, you know, I had some Polaroids I shot. And Griffey's sitting around. I said, uh, like, don't you want to leave? He said, no, I like photography. You want to take some more pictures? When do you get that opportunity? So he sat there and we just took photographs for like 15 or 20 minutes. I mean, Griffey's got more camera gear than I've had in the last like 20 years. He loves photography. And we became acquainted that day, and we've become friends ever since. You know, I did a book with Griffey in 96. You know, he's a terrific person, a great family man. Um, yeah, I love Griffey. So to, to go um, back to Walter for a second, in 1994, that cover shoot, Frank Thomas, that year, Alan Shipna, do you have any recollection of this 21-year-old kid trying to wrangle you in Pittsburgh at the All-Star game, and then Seattle 
and trying to trying to trying to get time with you as he was trying to do you have any recollection of this at all no uh, um I, you know i do remember going to the photo shoot because i was like why am i they don't want my jersey on this is not normal and walter you know to me it was one of those things that you know i was 24 it was one of those things that you got to do uh sports illustrated and i just said okay here we go let me let me do this. i do remember that the interview was a little longer than it should have been uh, <laughs> All good stuff, Al, obviously, thanks again. Uh, a tradition here on the fire pit is to ask all of our guests, what is your favorite fire pit? I mean, I grew up backpacking with my dad in the Sierra and sitting around those campfires in the middle of nowhere where it's pitch black and more stars you could ever imagine. That that would be an early memory, but in, in a golf context, it has to be up at abandoned dunes, uh, at the end of a long taxing Uncle Tony Invitational, uh, there's always a lot of camaraderie. Everyone's uh, emotional because it's been such a fun time. We often go back to our real lives. There's people drinking out of the trophy. Not me, but that's going to happen soon. Um, you know, Joe Horowitz is strumming the guitar. You're surrounded by those towering trees. And uh, it's just such an evocative setting. And uh, it'd be beautiful uh, if you're there by yourself. But the, the, the camaraderie and group of guys we have and the, the communal experience of having played the tournament and now this is kind of the end of it. Uh, that's definitely my, my favorite fire pit. Fun feeling to hear this this story and uh, and and to, uh, again I've heard bits and pieces throughout uh, our relationship and friendship and travels all over the world but to hear it all in one sort of uh, narrative arc was, uh, was a treat. So thanks again for the time, thanks again for sharing and uh, and I'm sure I'll see you at a fire pit soon, hopefully. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thanks for having me. All right, take care, buddy. Thank you for listening to The Fire Pit. This podcast is produced by Alex Upegi, edited by Rex Lint, theme song and music by Joe Horowitz. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, and you might find your review featured in a future episode. Got a question, comment, or a story for us to track down? You can find me on Twitter at Matt Janella or on Instagram at Matt underscore Janella. A condensed visual cut of this podcast is also available on the Fire Pit with Matt Janella YouTube channel. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the Fire Pit on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher.